Well, welcome. This is uh, Anthony Bone, and and this is John Cloaker. Today we're going to talk about emotional intelligence, and just to give you a little background uh, on both John and I. Uh, so for me, I uh, retired after 27 years in the Army, had a number of leadership positions, so I've got that real-world experience almost over three decades. I'm now teaching here at Army Management Staff College and have a, a particular passion for emotional intelligence. I've taken a couple uh, courses that were offered and picked up a lot of the kind of the essence of some of these courses, which both John and I have crafted into now a, an elective within the college that we offer called emotional intelligence. John? And uh, similar to Tony, I, I have 26 years of experience uh, in uniform with the Army and then some time as a uh, contract instructor and then followed on with uh, joining the AMSC team as a uh, GS instructor. Emotional intelligence is an area that I was really unaware of until I came to AMSC uh, and began actually as a uniform instructor with the organization, uh, getting to understand the uh, the importance of it. And uh, so my interest in that uh, began back a while ago, and then it's been kind of a privilege actually get to work with Tony on developing a lesson so we can actually espouse some of the uh, what we've learned and some of the collective body of knowledge that's out there in emotional intelligence and share that with students uh, to give them just a just a, a snippet of kind of the, the depth and breadth of what is entailed in emotional intelligence in what's out in really uh, academia and in the in commercial world getting at emotional intelligence. There's, there's a lot of work on it out there. And John, do you want to share... Uh what some of the research, some of the studies indicate with respect to the how a person is either successful or not successful and how EQ weighs into that and maybe even bounce that off of how even IQ relates to EQ. Yeah, Tony. Um, the, the, some of the, gr the work that really brought emotional intelligence to the forefront was Daniel Goldman. Uh, who did some work and wrote a book on emotional intelligence, and, and, and more than one. Uh, but in his, his studies and where he's done his look at emotional intelligence, what he found is that when looking at a person's success, about 15 to 20 percent of someone's success can be measured to be tied to their IQ, that is their cognitive ability, how smart they are. Uh, however, about 80 to 85% of a person's success is based on their emotional intelligence, or what we'll refer to as their EQ. Sometimes it's called a, an IE, but uh, we, for this discussion, we'll probably refer to it as uh, EQ throughout. Uh, but that, that's a real big disparity to think of how smart someone is, and that used to be the measure, the, the gold standard of how, how to see successful someone is going to be uh, throughout life. And it, it kind of goes to something actually Goldman had had alluded to in some of his discussions that he's had when he talks about emotional intelligence, that he went to his class reunion and uh, found that the most successful kid in the class was not the valedictorian. It was not those that had the highest grades, had the highest uh, entry scores to get into college. It, were, it was the kids who got along with everyone, who generally were friendly, could engage with people, uh, interact with people. Those were still, they were not necessarily standouts in academically in high school, but they were the kids that always got along and always did just, they did fairly well, but they actually were the ones who did much better later in life. So what I hear John saying is that there's hope for people like some of us who 
ain't quite so smart and maybe aren't quite even potentially the subject matter expert. Um, and in fact, John and I, in, in our elective, we asked the students, you know, to think about their, their most bestest leader that they've ever run across, the one that they have the greatest affinity to, that they remember the most, that's had the greatest impact on their life. We give them an option to write down some of those traits, characters, things that make up or kind of define those leaders. And we have them then place these stickies on a board underneath emotional intelligence, underneath subject matter expert column, underneath IQ, or or just other. And every single time we do this, overwhelmingly, the the a huge correlation, it comes down to EQ. EQ of what connects them to their most favorite leader. It's pretty revealing each and every time, and it's actually reaffirming kind of our thought on, on the again, the importance of what John just mentioned, what Goldman found out, to what we see even in the classroom. And in fact, um, John and I were, were across the pond, as we call it here at, at, uh, at Fort Leavenworth, and we were over at CGSC, and there happened to be a number of classrooms taken up through what we could tell was uh, an ROTC element, Reserve Officer Training Corps. What was going on there is that uh, they had pulled all of, not all, but a select number from across the, uh, the globe of ROTC leadership and cadets, and they brought them here to Fort Leavenworth, and they went through uh, about a five-day program that centered and focused exclusively on EQ. It's kind of the genesis on that was our, our former Army University provost, Major General Hughes, and, and his, his premise, his thinking, is that, that there is a gap in awareness of how emotions affect our leadership. And he said that, uh, at, you know, as future leaders, as we try and mold them, this inability of self-awareness to be socially aware, to manage one's emotions and manage one's relationships, has a significant uh, uh, either ability to build cohesive teams, to influence people, to, to accomplish the mission, or can have a very negative impact. There was a lot of resources that went uh, into this endeavor and again, just further highlighting uh, the, the significance and importance of what I think now some of our senior leaders are, are looking at that we really need to address, not just in the kind of the operational force, but here in the, here in the academic side as well. And then in our, in our course, our, our, our lesson that, we, that we, we present on emotional intelligence, we, we look at three different models that are out there. Uh, available in, in industry, basically, or in you know, in commercial world, I should say, in industry, but out there, available to the public, for getting a grasp of emotional intelligence, and and some of that work actually feeds one off of the other, and there's common threads throughout all of them that we look at, and while I say we we look at three, there's probably more out there, uh, so there may be a model that someone may look at the three we have and say, well, it just doesn't resonate with me. But yet there might be a fourth or a fifth, and it's like, hey, that one really does. I understand that, their concept, how they're speaking about emotional intelligence. But there's a theme that runs between, I think, all of them. And some of that really goes back to looking at the brain. Uh, so one of the one of the models we look at is how our brain is wired and how it works, and it's the six seconds model on emotional intelligence which has three kind of 
themes throughout. The first one being knowing yourself, the second one, choosing, second one choosing yourself, and then last is giving yourself. But it's really heavy in the neuroscience aspect of emotional intelligence. And so the brain has uh, kind of, most creatures on the planet have uh, in, in the brain a, a basic, the old part. So for us, it's the uh, uh, backed by the brain stem uh, is where that older piece of our anatomy kind of is developed. Uh, and it's controlled by a thing called the amygdala. That helps release some uh, hormones that, that make us do things. Looking at other less developed brains, um, there are things that are out there that really it's like it's they, they think in terms of, is this something that will eat me or is this something that I should eat? And that's basically the the how it thinks to keep alive. I either eat it or I'm going to be eaten. So it has responses to how it's going to respond to other things in the environment. And that's very basic. And it then ties to the, to the limbic part of the brain, which is where the emotions rest, is in that limbic part of the brain, uh, which there's no language tied to it. So you're just kind of going off that gut feeling. And then for us, we have, of course, the I think it's referred to as the neocortex, the, the front part of the brain, which is our rational part of the brain. Uh, and so we have a well-developed uh, brain that uses all these things, but there's some basic things that happen, and the amygdala kind of helps regulate all that. And so that there's a correlation between things that happen, and we have that emotional response, and then we have that rational brain that, that takes that emotion, and we start to process it. What do I do with that emotion? So, John, it's fair to say that when we feel, and I, I kind of use the word uh, feeling a little loosely here, but when we when we have this emotion, that's the amygdala that's released the hormones, and it's it's that instantaneous reaction to these emotions. So, again, very, very little, low-level really thinking. It's almost instinctual. In fact, uh, just the this past weekend, I was listening to another podcast, and they were talking about how the earliest ages, when when a uh, very young person has very little exposure to the world, how when they see like a spider or a snake, especially a snake, how there's an immediate reaction that takes place. And again, coming back to, you know, who knows how many millions of years this goes back that's been imprinted into our DNA. But coming back to emotion is that, again, it's the it's the reaction that our bodies have to the hormonal release. And then as it, as it floats up to the frontal cortexes, that the body now starts to cognitively think about what these emotions really mean. And that's where the real thinking starts to come in. That's where you could bring in really our thinking about our thinking talk about, okay, what is this feeling about? So you're looking at the question, you know, what are some of the other information that I need to consider, the other data, the facts? What assumptions uh, do I now need to make? And again, all of this is happening in that prefrontal cortexes of the brain that interpret now uh, this emotion that was a result of these hormones being released. You know, for example, Alcohol, you could, as a, as kind of a parallel, you could think of like, um, like, like a hormone being released. Alcohol comes in, it lowers our inhibitions. Uh, oftentimes, some not very good things happen as a result of people drinking too much alcohol because again, their, their inhibitions are lowered. And, uh, oftentimes there's some, 
uh, sad consequences of res- as a result of alcohol, for example. But to get over back to the more hormonal part of it, there's the the freeze, flight, fight, and fawn kind of reactions to these hormones. If you come over a hill and you're you're at night driving your vehicle and you and a deer's in the middle of the road, they tend to just freeze because that's their immediate reaction to the to the headlights that are oncoming. Flight, for example. So I mean, there I was. I was walking through some high brush known for its rattlesnakes, and I heard something rustle in the in the bush, and I immediately reacted emotionally to that. And I jumped as a result away from that noise because I thought it was a rattlesnake. Instead, it was a plastic bag rustling in the, in the, in the wind. But that was my immediate reaction. And then there's fawn, and that's similar to the Stockholm Syndrome, if you're familiar with that. And again, that's where, in, in that particular scenario in Stockholm, there was a robbery and, and there was captives involved. And, and the captives actually started to have these these positive feelings towards their capture, captors. And uh, that's the body's natural reaction because at that point, freezing's not going to help, flight's not going to help, and fighting is not going to help because they got guns. So there's another piece that kicks in, and that's this fawning. Again, if they, the idea being is that if they create this, this connection, this warmth with their captors, they won't be hurt. There is, there is another model and it's probably one of the most popular ones out there, uh, written by a Dr. Greaves and uh, Dr. Bradbury. And it's Emotional Intelligence 2.0, which is generally found in nearly every airport bookstore uh, somewhere on the end of, the, of a, uh, a bookcase. They really have done their work, and it's, it's a little bit based off of Goldman's work and a little bit off of another gentleman's work that was on the, the third model that we'll get at, EQI some of the work that was done on that model. Greaves and Bradbury uh, have really made the most, the most popular kind of version or commercially available model to look at for emotional intelligence. And it's, it's really based on four different areas to start looking at, which is some self-awareness, self-management, awareness of others, and relationship management. And when you, and when you, if you were to buy that book, uh, at the store, they have in the back of it a code, and, and you go online. You can you can take an assessment, which uh, I happen to actually have mine here, and it's a it'll give you a, a detailed printout based on what you uh, your responses to their assessment, your rating or your uh, a snapshot of your emotional intelligence, and then you can use that again. And they recommend about six months later after you've read the book and maybe tried to implement some things to improve your emotional intelligence, do it again uh, and get another assessment and see if you've improved in that process. But they has a lot of a lot of different things in there on ways you can get better at um, emotional intelligence. Because the, the one key thing that Greaves and Bradbury kind of hit home in their their model and their concept is that emotional intelligence is not fixed. So our our EQ our IQ cognitive ability, knowledge that we have that the, our smarts that kind of gets set early on in life. And, but our emotional intelligence is something that improves over time, and we get better at it. And if you think about the development of the brain, um, it keeps developing until you're in your 20s when the final connections are kind of made between the, the, the forward lobes and the rest of the brain. It still keeps developing and, and until you're, you're much older than what we would 
normally probably think. But if you think about that, that growth of the brain as human growth happens and emotional intelligence grows, think of a child having the temper tantrum in the store or your own child if you have been blessed with one, two, four children. And they'll have these, temp- these temper tantrums, the terrible twos, uh, these things are going when they're three and four. But if you, if you fast forward, if, as you've seen them grow and they're 10, 11, 12, they don't do that anymore. And when they see another a child that's young like that doing it, they'll be, they'll be almost like rolling their eyes saying, why is that kid acting up? And the parent, is, and I've done this, I look at mine, it's like, well, you used to do that, you nut. That was, that, that was you six years ago. Um, but that's because they're growing and they're, they're actually uh, developing, the brain is developing, and they're developing some emotional intelligence. That was child emotions hijacking them in what they do, and then they've learned as they've grown, they learn how you don't do those things. That's not how you respond to other people and get along with other people. So they get better at how they interact. Um, so, so this particular theory of emotional intelligence, the one uh, by Talent Smart 2.0, um, like John says, it has really four quadrants, and I, I just like to add a little context to what that kind of looks like too. There's the self-aware part of this, and that's actually understanding self. But that's not good enough, because it's only one part of four, again, with respect to this particular model, this particular mental model theory of emotional intelligence. Again, understanding self is really good. It's important. It's actually the first step, but it's not good enough to get us to accomplish our tasks out there, to properly influence people, to get those tasks done. The next part of this, and I do think there's a sequence, there's nothing written uh, explicitly, at least in the book, that talks about a sequence. But I, John and I have talked about it to a large degree, and we think, yeah, there, it makes sense that there's a sequence. So the first part, again, would be self-awareness, understanding self. And then the next part, the next logical flow to this, is the management of self. So if you're able to gain this insight into self, the next step is to take this new insight and use it to manage ourselves. Um, so I'll share with you a story. I, uh, I had this weed whacker. It would never start. Never did seem to like me. Feelings were mutual, although obviously this inanimate object machine doesn't have feelings. Uh, and as I tried to start pulling it to get it started, I became very upset. And I knew perfectly that I was getting very angry. I was perfectly self-aware that I was angry. And next thing you know, I drop kick the weed whacker and I was wearing toe shoes, which is like basically barefoot, and I broke my toe. True story. And so although I was self-aware and I acknowledged perfectly my anger in this case, I still didn't manage myself appropriately and so I didn't quite have this, the self-management part done. And this goes in, in all kinds of endeavors with people. So let's say we get the self-management done. Okay, we're, we're now self-aware of ourself. We're using this to manage ourself. And then now we can use this building block, these first two blocks, to now look at others outside of ourself and try to understand them. Although through our our course here at AMSC in, in the intermediate course, there's a, a number of instruments we provide the students that gains their that self-awareness first part. 
but the self-management part starts to slip a little bit. And almost there's no part, because we haven't got to that self-management part, to get after the, the awareness of others. This, what the theory has here, the mental model talks about social awareness. So that's, a, that's the, really the awareness of others. After the second week, I asked the students to, to identify those members, even just at their table group, the ones that they literally sit directly across, eye to eyeball every day, and ask them to put down what makes these others up in, 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 in the context of some of these psychometric instruments that, that they've all been provided. Never have I gotten any one person to identify everybody at their table group uh, with respect to a, a number of these instruments that, that have been provided. But they're, they're pretty good at being able to identify for themselves what these instruments told them. Um, but they didn't take, they didn't do, take the work. They didn't put the energy in to be able to capture the, the information that now they can use to understand others. And, but let's say, for example, they do do that. I had one student that wrote down every little thing that happened in the course. So she could at least refer back to that data if she chose to, and then look at that and, okay, well, here's what makes up this other person. Um, if you're familiar with Briggs-Myers indicator, you know, it talks about extroversion, introversion. That's a pretty common typology that people are fairly familiar with. Just because someone's not not wanting to be at points, members of the team at every point in time throughout the, the day doesn't necessarily mean that they're they're rejecting the team. It's just that they may be more inclined for introversion. But that comes then to the last stage, and that's that uh, what the what the mental model of Talent Smart 2.0 talks about relationship management. And that's basically in the Army's context of leadership influencing. Influencing to accomplish the mission. We start off to recap the self-awareness, management of self, use some of these newfound awareness instruments to be able to be aware of others and, and how they behave and act, and use that in the context of influencing for, for the good and for getting after this relationship management to again accomplish the task. And then our, our last model that we have is EQI, which is a another model and probably came before Emotional Intelligence 2.0. Uh, and I'm not for sure if it maybe was developed in uh, parallel with uh, the six seconds model. But it, is, it basically takes emotional intelligence and breaks it down into five composites as a model. And then each of those composites have three elements that make it up. And they are self-perception as, as far as these are the five, the five composites, self-perception, self-expression, uh, interpersonal, stress management, and decision-making. And then underneath each of those, there's, there's three elements that help feed into that. And it really gets at, at looking at how we are seeing ourselves, that, that self-perception, and then how we are expressing ourselves, the behaviors, those things that we are, uh, how we're carrying ourselves under that self-expression piece, and then how we're managing relationships in the interpersonal uh, aspects. And, and in that one, those three elements underneath gets at interpersonal relationships, empathy, and social responsibility, of which one of those, empathy, is one of those key things that we have in for the Army, our leadership requirements model. It ties directly into one of those uh, attributes that we want in our leadership. 
is empathy. And then the, uh, the last two, uh, stress management, hits flexibility, stress, stress tolerance, and optimism as the three elements. And then decision making, which gets at impulse control, reality testing, and problem solving. And for emotional intelligence, that impulse control is a big one because uh, we talk a little bit from the other models on emotional hijacking, how things can be triggers and, they, and we get emotionally hijacked. And then that becomes the focus um, and takes us off task of where we maybe want to go uh, and can impede us accomplishing the mission or even influencing being a leader and influencing properly how we, how we would want to influence. We do an exercise where students will pick the one, the one element that they – that they want to work on that isn't quite right in their life. And the ones that I, that I see in this anecdotal evidence anyway, time and time again in the classroom is empathy, impulse control, and optimism. And it's it just, I find it striking that um, like time and again, those three seem to stand out. Do you see any other correlations with the class, John? Those are the three big ones that throughout the time that we've done our our class on emotional intelligence, those do stand out. And I think there is a tie-in between that optimism and empathy piece. Yeah, and, and that, um, that tie-in is uh, and it's a very interesting because there's just been some recent studies on this. And the mental model, the theory behind EQI in, in this particular mental model also says that, hey, in in regards to optimism – that that's one of the elements that you can't say, okay, I'm going to try and not be an optimist. So you can't focus on not being an optimist if you're naturally inclined to be an optimist. And so what the the theory of the mental model in this particular case asks you to do is instead focus on being empathetic. Uh, don't worry about the the optimism part. Just focus now in turn on a, on one of these other elements. In this case. With respect to optimism, focus on empathy, and if you focus on empathy, it'll improve your it, it'll it'll help bring you down as an overdone characteristic of being overly optimistic. For example, if that's something that you know that somebody has that they never find anything wrong, that everything always has a silver lining. If you're the eternal optimist, it's hard for individuals to to be empathetic. So it. Again, it's it's refocusing you on, okay, what is it? What are some of the helpful traits to become more empathetic? And and the and the theory, the mental model, has some has some addresses to that. One, for example, would just be simply to listen, ask questions of the other person, and and those are just a couple techniques. And there's many more that are offered both in the course and in the material uh, in this particular theory. Of emotional intelligence, and then Tony brought up a good point. In, in our, in part of what we we present, we, we rely on some of the material from the model on EQI, um, and they have an interesting set of videos that talks about for each of these elements how they can be underdone, overdone, and what what it usually looks like when it's just right. And it kind of helps frame to get a common picture. What does social responsibility look like when it's, you're getting it right? What does it look like when it's overdone? What does it look like when it's underdone? Same with problem solving. What does it look like when problem solving is overdone or underdone? Uh, when is it kind of just right? You know, one of you, something that comes up in another 
element is when have you done the analysis paralysis per se on that one that you keep looking at the problem over and over and over so much that you just you know you have to finally make a decision uh, because you can't just keep churning on the trying to get it better to the to the finite detail you have to take the the 80 90 percent solution and go with it so the particular elective we have uh, only covers three of these different mental models of emotional intelligence. And like John mentioned, there's there's many more out there. Uh, but these are kind of the three big ones, um, the six seconds. And there's a reason they call it six seconds, by the way, and that's because most people make decisions within six seconds. For many of us, that's hard to believe. We happen to be here at Leavenworth, where we have several different, both the city and then the post-Leavenworth has a number of jails. We have the military prison. We have federal penitentiary. We have a state penitentiary, and we have a local county jail here as well. Odds are is that most of those individuals sitting and residing in those institutions made a bad decision probably within six seconds. Yeah, we kind of joke about that in class. And then with that, that six seconds model, yeah, there is there is in their, in their theory is if you can take and make that pause for longer than six seconds to think about what you're going to do um, or how you're going to react before you make that decision and commit to an action, that you'll make better decisions. You'll improve that emotional intelligence. You won't maybe cause that break in uh, an interpersonal relationship that because of a misunderstanding because you didn't you didn't take time to to think about it or maybe not make a decision and, and see where this it goes versus, hey, I have to make a decision now, being kind of judgmental, wanting to instantly, I've got to come up and answer. Um, kind of, it kind of ties into uh, listening and making sure you're listening to understand, not to respond. And that six seconds is take longer than that to make sure you are, you are listening to understand versus listening to respond. And take that, go a little bit longer than six seconds um, before you take an action. And another event that we have the, our students do uh, in in our elective emotional intelligence, is we give them a, a, a time frame in, in in their table groups to address all the different emotional terms that they can possibly think of. Um, so this is getting after our own literacy of emotions. So I challenge you out there to just take a, a couple minutes and write down all of the emotional terms that you can possibly think of. And what John and I have found is that even within a table group of, say, six or, or so, that um, probably on the average, I would say it ranges anywhere from about 20 to 30 terms. So this is six people in a just a setting, not rushed. We do give them a certain time frame uh, of a couple minutes. But that's all, the, that's all the emotional terms the group can think of. And it's been pretty consistent through all the classes. And I, I say that just to say that, you know, the English language has 5,000 different words describing emotions. Now, that's in the English language. I want to be clear about that, too. The studies also indicate that when you're asking a person in the moment how they feel, that only about 36% of the people are able to actually identify their emotions as they happen. So you take after a couple minutes of six people together identifying all the terms they can possibly think of, and it boils down to just less than 30. And you take just 36% of that, because in the moment now, when you ask a person how they feel, and for example, you probably have seen on TV, 
where uh, the reporter comes up after some major incidents happen and, so how do you feel about this? And they just, again, they're almost in the freeze mode, right? Because they, they, they're having a hard time with the literacy of the terms of, the, of how they're actually feeling. So you're not going to get a high degree or a good definition, most likely, of a person, especially when in the moment. And again, that's, that comes back to kind of one of those four blocks as far as understanding others and how to eventually uh, influence others. One note, too, that is uh, in the English language, if you look at the word love, for example, really there's just one word for love in the English language. Spanish has three. And if you look at some of the the older languages, like Sanskrit, for example, has like almost 30 different terms for love, for example. And there's a number of other languages out there. The older Persian language has... I think it's somewhere around 18 different terms for love, for example. So we're kind of restricted to a degree with the English language. Another another key note, too, is that uh, what we find often is that uh, most of those terms that, that the students put down have these negative connotations of feeling, sad, angry, afraid, ashamed, not the positive, happy. So again, we're, we're again even more restricted challenge you to, to take two minutes, write down all the terms that you can possibly think of, and remember that maybe only 30%, 36% of those terms you're going to be able to recall in the moment. Uh, what we use in our, our class is looking at three different definitions that come from three different sources. There is uh, from Savoy and Meyer a uh, definition that emotional intelligence has been defined as the ability to monitor one's own and others' feelings and emotions to discriminate among them and to use this information as, or I should say, use this information to gu- to guide one's thinking and actions. So really getting at the self, understanding yourself and how you will react. Then the next one we'll get from Bradbury Greaves from Emotional Intelligence 2.0. Emotional intelligence is your ability to recognize and understand emotions in yourself and others and your ability to use this awareness to manage your behavior and relationships. So again, how we're interacting, influencing others in relationships. And the last one comes from Goldman, who has really been one of the, the seminal, uh, done the seminal work on emotional intelligence and, and really started to popularize coining the phrase EQ. Um, and that is emotional intelligence is defined as the ability to identify, assess, and control one's own emotions and the emotions of others and that of groups. So he's going to add how we, how are we, from my perspective and thought is, how are we leading people? How, how are we using our emotions, identifying others, and then leading our teams out there, um, on our organizations? How are we getting at that as well as ourself and those relationships along the way? Yeah, I'd like to give credit to the coinage of emotional intelligence. Uh, because Goleman, when he was uh, sitting in on Reuven Barron, and again, that's the EQI instrument and mental model of, of that particular EQ thing. That's the one with the the 15 elements. The Goleman was set, sitting in there, and Reuven Barron had mentioned emotional intelligence. Use the EQ, emotional intelligence, term, and Goleman came up and said, hey, that's, that's kind of an aha for me in, in the coinage of what we're all talking about. Do you mind if I use it? 
do you mind if I take it and, and use it in my, my further research? Coining it, in other words. And uh, he gave him his blessing. And now Talent Smarts picked up Goldman's research, coined it EQ, probably one of the, like John had mentioned, probably one of the most popular books out there that you can probably find in any airport you can pick up off the shelf. But let me, let me address what emotional intelligence is not at the same token. So we've kind of talked about it to a degree, given you some kind of some definitions from some of the leading authors with respect to EQ. But what emotional intelligence is not is it's, again, as we mentioned, it's not IQ. It's not a cognitive intelligence type sort of thing. It's not a skill assessment. Um, if you were to take one of the instruments to see kind of where you fall in this range of EQ, it doesn't identify one's vocational interest or even capability in, in a particular vocation. So it doesn't do that. And it doesn't give you a, a personality type like MBTI does or SDI, uh, Strength Deployment Indicator, some of these other psychometric instruments. So it doesn't do that because like John had mentioned, EQ doesn't give you a personality type. And it's like John had mentioned, uh, plasticity uh, is a neuroplasticity is a function where, again, the brain can rewire itself, and that's why you can improve in EQ, whereas that doesn't work in IQ. And what we didn't talk about also was uh, with respect to even one's character. Uh, there's a number of studies out there that talk about one's character is pretty much fixed at age 8. Now, that, that fluctuates depending upon what kind of study you look at. But somewhere in your early youth, one's character is, is rather fixed. And as John mentioned, IQ is, is pretty much your brain has wired itself for the most part from the cognitive standpoint in your early 20s. It's done at that point. And your IQ really is going to change a whole lot. But, but because of this plasticity, this neuroplasticity, you can improve in your EQ. And there's a number of studies that kind of show that one's EQ increases over one's age. In, in a general context of the population, they've, again, as, as a number of these particular mental models uh, provide these instruments that people take, they gather the data, and all the different mental models that John and I uh, address within the, the elective, they all, they all come out with the same narrative, and that's that over time, one's EQ increases uh, up until about age 70, and then, then it starts to have a precipitous down, downward trend. And then there's another correlation that's rather interesting. And John, if you want to talk about, again, as uh, the, the types of leadership that's out there at the different levels and how EQ correlates with those different levels. Yeah, there is a part of the studies or the, the work that was done by uh, Bradbury and Greaves looked at positions by, by job title and how people based on job title correlated to what their EQ scores were. The interesting thing was those that were supervisors and managers who generally are interacting with people on a daily basis, having to be leaders, uh, demonstrate leadership, they had the highest emotional intelligence. Surprisingly, those that had a job title of CEO and senior executive had some of the lowest or lower, collectively, I should say, the lower uh, emotional intelligence. It was, it's very intriguing that some of those that were given the most highest positions, highest pay, the most power, have lower emotional intelligence than those that are much closer down at the worker level. In fact, even what are listed as individual contributors have a higher emo emotional intelligence score or assessment 
than senior executives, vice presidents, executives, and CEOs. So it's 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 kind of intriguing, and and there's a there's a thought behind that that trend. EQ, of course, it gets better if you work at it. You have to stay engaged. If you don't use it, you kind of lose it. So it atrophies. So as people have maybe gone up the proverbial ladder to their ivory tower, hit that pinnacle, they're not engaging with people as much. It's sometimes even the relationships don't have to be as strong. It's kind of like the, well, the boss said this, we're not going to challenge the boss. Whereas when you're closer down doing the work, when you're working with a, your manager and you're the, the, the worker, just the worker be on the line, there's got to be a, a dialogue and a correspond, you know, some sort of communication goes back and forth to get the, the tasks done and done right because things like safety come involved, become involved, the production becomes involved, and usually generally those folks are wanting to work together to achieve those goals. However, if you, the higher up you get, sometimes you're not having to build that relationship to, to make sure people are getting the break they need, that they are, you understand what's going on in their, in their, maybe their daily life out beyond work. You lose touch with them so that people are not maybe even putting in the extra effort that you need from them, uh, that you get when you build that relationship. And if, if you're a little bit more distant from that, where you don't have to build those relationships because generally people don't question you. Or maybe it's just you're just not interacting with people anymore as much as you used to that you lose it. You atrophy that skill in emotional intelligence. And, and that's not to say CEOs never had it. The thought is they probably had it when they had jobs that where they were the supervisor, where they were the manager. They probably had it and were just as, as very well at it as those that are currently doing it then. It's just they've kind of lost it because now they're they're in a different position and they're their setting, that environment they're operating in, they, they don't have to be as emotionally in tune, or they're not, I should say don't have to be, but they're not as emotionally in tune maybe with those they, they work with than they maybe they think they are. To kind of just kind of pull this all together in these last final minutes, as long as we can acknowledge the fact, be self-aware that, again, that our first reactions to any event that happens to us is going to be emotional. If we can, if we're aware of that, and we can think about it, like John had mentioned, if we can break the six-second decision-making, maybe extend that out just a little bit longer so our cognitive part uh, has time to address that and what that really means to us and manage, now manage that emotion and, and use that to, for, for the construct of, of making better relationships, better decisions. And also the idea that, that EQ can be learned. It's something that you can improve on. no matter what your age, and that if we don't practice it, if we don't deliberately, consciously practice it, that it'll atrophy and will actually regress with respect to emotional intelligence. And lastly, probably one of the bigger things in the so what to all this is that our EQ is the single biggest predictor of our overall performance. Again, how we're going to build relationships, lead people, get the mission done. For the three models that we have kind of bantered around throughout this podcast and that there are more beyond it. All of them, all of these models, if one of them resonates with you or, or you think you may be interested, they all have some sort of information to help get better at emotional intelligence, how you can get improve your emotional intelligence under their model. Uh, and in their system. And if you, and if you look at all of them together, there's a thread that runs through all of them. 
they're they're not all that much different. Uh, but some some just may may resonate with one person more than the other. But all of them will give you some sort of tool, uh, some sort of guides that can help you to improve in your emotional intelligence,、uh, so that you can you can do better and be more successful.